before you sit down, would you say the Lord's Prayer with me? Otherwise we begin. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Let me see. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I wonder what that would look like. If everybody just simply decided today they're going to stop living in in whatever ways that they were living for themselves and decided today they were going to start living for God's glory. Of course, maybe everybody is too much to hope for, right? What, What if it was just you and me and just the two of us? What if today you and I stopped for a moment and we said, Father, today I want to live for you. Help me, Lord, to love you with everything that I am and to love my neighbors in the same way. If we did that, if you and I did that, what would change, if anything, in our world, in our lives? How would it look? What might change? This passage uh, from Isaiah, it kind of caught me. You know, I, I was thinking, uh, I got caught in its, in its trap. And you know that old song that goes, I'm caught in a trap, right? I can't walk out. How many of you know that song? All right, you guys are officially old if you know that song. All right, that's, uh, or, or maybe you're just Elvis fans or something, but... That's okay, but I kind of felt like that as I thought about this passage from Isaiah, and uh, it it got me. You know, when I first heard it, I thought uh, this is this is kind of a neat passage, and I was I was drawn in by the the imagery and the flow of the passage, and and I thought, hey, this would be a a neat passage to preach a sermon on. Oh man, Uh, yeah, I got caught, and and the reality of it is is that Isaiah planned it that way. I mean, he planned. To catch some people. It wasn't aimed at me specifically, but he throws kind of a wide loop and he caught me. And I remember when I first heard it, it was it was last semester, and, and maybe I'd you know, maybe I'd heard it before that, but never really read it. And and I looked at it in our in my graduate class this past semester, and and I was taken in by the the uh, imagery and the flow of it and the uh, just the way it was strung together. And when I first read it, I immediately thought of a little cartoon animated cartoon short that I know of called Bambi versus Godzilla. Have you seen it? How many of you have seen that one? Yeah, some of you have, yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I should bring that along and show it this morning. And then I thought that uh, possibly those of you with an emotional attachment to Bambi would not be happy with that. And For example, my son is up there, and, and those kinds of images, uh, you know, they impact him. But, but I'll describe it to you. How's that? Uh, 
So it starts out with Bambi, it's, and it's not technologically real, real uh, up to today's standards or anything. It's kind of a 2D animated cartoon, and it starts out with Bambi in this little meadow, and it's a beautiful meadow, and it's, there's flowers, and the sun is shining, and trees in the background, and Bambi is prancing along, and there's soft, beautiful music in the background. And a butterfly, you know, flits out of the one side of the screen and lands on Bambi's nose, and oh, he's startled. It's nice. And, and Bambi, and the butterfly flies off. And, uh, and this goes on for like, uh, you know, 15 seconds maybe, and it, you get to the point where you realize that, okay, I, I'm getting it, you know. Uh, and then Bambi, you know, reaches down for a mouthful of green, luscious, nourishing grass, and suddenly, wham, from out of nowhere, this giant foot, green, ugly Godzilla foot, comes down and completely obliterates Bambi. And, uh, you know, if, if I had shown that here today, um, probably some of you would have said, you know what, that's probably not appropriate for a Sunday morning, <laughs> maybe. Uh, and I might have gotten some, maybe some calls or some letters or an email from a parent who said, you know, my child, you know, couldn't sleep that night because of what you showed in, in, uh, in church on Sunday morning. And, uh, and, and there might have been a little bit of upset. Maybe somebody would have been a little angry or a little frustrated by that, and with, probably with some good reason. And Wes probably would have taken me aside later and said, you know, you really ought to think about that before you do that again. Uh, but the reason that this passage reminded me of that is because it has a similar flow to it. It starts out with this beautiful idyllic scene. You know, it's a love song, and it's, it's, centered, it's set in a beautiful setting. And in just a few short verses, it goes horribly wrong. And a picture of complete devastation at the end. And Isaiah planned that, you know, because he had a serious, a deadly serious message that he wanted to communicate to the people of Israel. And, and he, he wanted something that would draw them in, a picture of something that was beautiful and something that would draw them in. And then he wanted to, he wanted them to feel the seriousness of what Yahweh was trying to describe, trying to get across to them. And so he starts out with this picture of a vineyard, which is down here. And it's this, he says, you know, I can picture Isaiah going out to the marketplace or to, uh, you know, somewhere where there were people gathered and beginning this song. And of course, they didn't have TV then. So this, this was entertainment, right? There's a, a person going to tell a story by song. And he and he stands up and he says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. And people stop and they would say, hey, we're going to hear a story. And it's going to be a good story. It's a love story. And it's about a vineyard. And of course, this is a culture that is very familiar with agriculture and, and uh, with this whole idea of growing a vineyard. And so they stop to listen. And Isaiah goes on, he says, and he starts talking about this farmer. My loved one had a fertile hillside. So this farmer has gone out and he's found a perfect plot of, of uh, land. It's got the right slope. It's, it faces the right direction to get the best sun. I mean, some forethought has gone into this. He's, maybe he had to purchase it, some investment there. But he found the perfect place to build this vineyard. And so not only does he find a perfect place, but the next phrase says, he dug it up and he cleared it of stone. So he, he goes and he puts in the elbow grease, the effort that's needed to make it into something that will grow a good vineyard. And he digs and he, 
And as he's digging in this particular kind of soil, he finds lots of stones. That's uh, the way it was. And so he sets those stones aside because he's got some use for them later. And he puts in that effort. He digs up the ground, sets the stones aside around the edge of the vineyard. And then he goes out and it says, he planted it with the choicest vines. All right, so he didn't, he didn't just go and buy the cheapest vines he could find. He didn't uh, pick up the first ones he came across. He got good ones, you know, 100%, 100% guaranteed to produce good fruit. Right? He went and got the choicest possible vines, and he plants them. And now that they're planted, it took two years after planting to see a crop in a vineyard like this. And so he's got them in, and he's planted, and now he's got some time, but he doesn't let it go to waste. Now he's got all those stones around the edge of the vineyard, and he builds up a wall. He starts building that wall so that it can protect the vineyard. And then he takes stones that are left over and he builds up a tower in the center, a watchtower, so that the watchtower, he can live there. He can be with the vines. He can watch over it, make sure that nothing gets to them, make sure that they're uh, growing well and, and, and attend to their needs. And then lastly, the last thing he does, he has a, a one more structure to build, and that is the... Uh, the structure that will help him collect the, the fruit, right? In expectation, he's done everything right. In expectation of good fruit, he builds some wine vats and basically just two big basins, one where you squish out the grapes and then a trough runs from there down to the other basin where the, where the wine would settle and he could collect it from there. I can imagine Isaiah, as he's telling this story, the people in the crowd, uh, you know, I can imagine there being some old farmers there who, look back in their lives and, and have done this process a hundred times. And I can see them nodding. You're, you're, that's right. They're saying, you're doing it right. This is guaranteed to be good, a good fruit. And you got some younger guys or younger people in the crowd who, uh, who are also farmers, you know, and they're, they haven't had a chance to do it yet. Maybe they haven't had money, but they're thinking, when I get my plot of ground or when I get some money, this is how I'm going to do it because this is the right way and it's going to produce good fruit. And there are, you know, everybody in the crowd, maybe if they weren't necessarily associated with agriculture, but a bountiful harvest was a blessing for the whole community. And so they're all like, yeah, this is a good story. It's going to end well, right? This is a, hev- a happily ever after kind of story. And so they're right with them up to this point. And then in the second verse, at the end of the second verse, there's this moment kind of of a pause then he looked for good grapes, but it yielded only bad, only bad fruit. And you can kind of see the turn in the story, and, and suddenly everybody's uh, concerned. Uh-oh, maybe this isn't going to be what we thought it was. There's a problem here. And, 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 and you find you know, people saying two years' worth of work down the drain, all this investment, all this effort, it's gone. And I could hear maybe the, the, the people in the crowd saying, you might as well get rid of that, that vineyard. It's, it's no good. It's not going to produce anymore. And so Isaiah goes on and he says, now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to knock down the wall. I'm not going to work it anymore. It's going to grow up briars and thorns and, and uh, it's going to be trampled. It'll be a wasteland. And the people are with them. They're saying, yeah, that's right. There's nothing else you can do with it. It's, it's not going to produce. In fact, you might as well curse it. And so the very 
in, in verse 6, he says, I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Uh, in, the, in the middle there, he asks the people, what more could I have done? You know, you, you judge, what, what could I have done? And I think the resounding answer would have been from them, nothing. You did it right. You couldn't have done anything more. And now he comes to the punchline. He's got them. They've judged themselves. And he says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Yeah, and it was, uh, there must have been a moment of silence, you know, aghast. Oh, you're talking about us? This is the Lord speaking? Uh, he caught him, and he caught me too. Now, this passage is full of implications, and, but let me just reflect on a couple of broad ideas that hopefully we can take home here. First, there's a reasonable expectation of fruit here. It's a reasonable thing, right? It's not unreasonable. The farmer has invested and done properly what needs to be done. And it's reasonable for him to expect fruit. The rhetorical question in verse 4 emphasizes this fact. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? The clearly implied answer is nothing. God's pattern throughout the history of the people of Israel was to provide for their needs, both physical and spiritual. Yahweh has shepherded and guided his people and protected them. He showed great patience with them. He gave them great leaders like Abraham and Moses and the judges and King David. He gave them the promised land, the law, the sacrificial system, the temple and the prophets. He called them his children. And God's expectation from all of that is a nation that's dedicated to him. A people that will promote justice and righteousness. A people that will be his tool in the world to usher in his kingdom on earth. Unless we think that this idea is something that's contained only in the Old Testament, I should note that this image is found all over the scriptures and in many places in the New Testament, including the John 15 passage that we saw this morning where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Anyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. And again, in Luke 13, Jesus tells the parable of a fig tree that would not produce. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the parable of the wicked tenants. All of these contain the idea that the owner of the vineyard has a reasonable expectation of fruit. And if it was reasonable for the Israelites to bear fruit, how much more so for you and I? We have all the benefits of the history of the people of Israel, that the great legacy of the community of faith. We have the Old Testament, and in addition, we now have the benefit of knowing Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. We have the redemptive, indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles, and the whole New Testament. The historic church, for, for all of her often quoted blemishes and flaws, still has been and is being God's tool throughout the centuries in bringing his kingdom to earth. I think that all of this is preparation in our own lives. 
it's reasonable for God to expect the fruit of righteousness and justice. Now, those two words, righteousness and justice, uh, they're connected all over the scriptures in a lot of different places, and especially in this book of Isaiah. They're often used together as they are in this, in this parable. And in fact, in a few cases, they're used interchangeably. Now, as we talk about justice, I could, I think, you know, I could stand up here and give you a whole long list of justice issues. Uh, for example, we could talk about the HIV AIDS epidemic in Africa or or places in the world where there's no water, where people have no water and, and uh, there's starvation and hunger and those kinds of things. We could talk about sponsoring children through World Vision or, or uh, Compassion International, which I know many of you do. Or more locally, we could, we could mention poverty that exists right here in Allegheny County. Uh, we could talk about Royal Family Kids Camp or foster care or we could mention food pantry outreach or benevolent fund. All of these things, I know many of you are involved with them. And there, there are many others. And I, and I could pick one of those that I was really passionate about, and I could stand up here and make a really passionate plea for you to be involved. And you may or may not, you know, do that. But I really believe that as closely linked as these two words, justice and righteousness, are, and as important as they both are, if we talk about justice... Without or before we talk about righteousness, we miss the point. Now, this, this parable is found in chapter 5, and in the previous four chapters, and in chapter 6, Isaiah describes some of the specific sins that the people have fallen into. And it's not that they're not going to church or participating in the sacrificial system as they're supposed to under the law. In fact, in chapter 1, the Lord rails against the multitude of sacrifices and prayers that the people were bringing. He says in one fifteen, When you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. They were going into the temple and lifting their hands to the Lord. And he was looking down and he's saying, you know what? I can't hear that prayer because all I can see is the oppression that you're perpetrating on innocent people. I can't listen to it. Their church life had no bearing or relationship to the rest of their lives. In fact, it was meaningless to them. They were doing all the right forms of worship to Yahweh, maybe out of habit or out of some kind of societal uh, norm. But then they would go out, and, and the problems that Isaiah describes are things like greed and oppression of the poor and innocent, unbelief and idolatry and murder. And in, in chapter 1, verse 21 God says, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. The prophets often used this image of prostitution to describe the sin of the people. In effect, they were saying, you've left the intimate, powerful relationship with the Lord, your beloved, and have begun to serve other gods. What they were trying to do by worshiping these other gods was basically manipulate their environment for personal gain. They were living according to self-interest as opposed to dependence on God and, and, and glory, uh, glory to God. So they would say, I'm going to go worship the fertility goddess so that my crops will grow or so that my, uh, I will have many children or, or that my flocks will increase. And it becomes an easy step from there, from that position of self-interest to saying, my needs are more important than my neighbor's. 
And then, if I've got more power than my neighbor, it's just another small step to saying my needs are more important than theirs, and I'm going to take what I need from my neighbor. And this is kind of the thing that was happening in Israel. And the progression had gone on long enough that murder was commonplace. Thievery, bribery, injustice, they're everyday occurrences. Verse 23 of chapter 1 pronounces this indictment. It says, Your rulers and rebels are companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So you see that something had happened to their heart. They ceased to honor God, and the justice issues fell by the wayside. This was just an extension of their heart attitude. Now, I think it's safe to say that here in this community, we're probably not at that place, right? I mean, you know, you know the old joke about when you, uh, when you lock your car in Houghton, right? You know that one? You have to lock it during zucchini season so that nobody puts a zucchini in your car, right? And so we may not be struggling with some of the exact same issues that they were, but uh, many years ago, I, I sat with, with some friends, a group of friends, there's just four or five of us, and we, were, we had gotten together because a friend of ours had uh, kind of gone off the deep end, and, and he completely turned his back on God, and, and he was walking away, and he had gotten into some things, and we, we were shocked, and we, were, we felt hurt, and uh, there was pain, and, and we felt betrayed, and there was anger, and we were sitting around trying to work through this situation, and, and some of us were crying. And I mean, it was, it was a painful moment. And as we sat there, and, and, and each individual would vent a little bit, and, and we'd kind of try to process what was going on, uh, one person that was there <clears throat> said this, and I'm going to mangle exactly what he said, but the idea, the thought was this. He said, you know, about this situation, about that friend, I feel deep sadness. I mean, I, I feel sad about it. At the same time, I think, there but for the grace of God go I. And we, we quickly, you know, kind of jumped at that, and we said, you know, listen, you would never, you would never be there. That, that person has, has, is, you know, so far from God right now, and, you know, you would never get to that point. It's so far from where you are right now. And, and then that person said, you know what, each day, each moment, I have this decision to make. And although it looks like that's a long ways away, really, it's just a series of small steps. And if I live this moment, this particular decision, for my own interest and for my own gain, as opposed to being dependent on the Lord and living for God's glory, then I take a small step. And quickly, as we make those decisions daily, little steps in the direction of self-interest, we soon, I think, can find ourselves having arrived at places that we didn't think we would or that we didn't think was even possible. But thankfully, the opposite is also true. Despite where I may have been, despite the things in my past that I'm ashamed of, or despite even the sins that occurred in the last day or hour or minute. If I decide right now to live this moment 
the decision that is in front of me for God and not for myself, I will find that the distance between where I am and where God wants me to be is just a series of small steps. Because God's response to our repentance is, and, and, and humility is always redemption. And so once we're in that place of repentance and humility before God, oriented toward him, maybe, maybe we could call that righteousness. We can't help but notice and act when we encounter injustice in the world. Righteousness, or the condition of being right before God, generates justice. I know that many of you know uh, Dr. Joanne Lyon. Uh, if you don't know who she is, she's the founder of World Hope International. And she's been involved in justice issues for many, many years. And and involved in uh, trying to get the Wesleyan Church and Wesleyans in general involved in alleviating suffering around the world. And she has also uh, just been elected. Is it an elected position? Elected? She was elected as one of the four general superintendents of the Wesleyan Church. And she's a great speaker and thinker and writer. And, and she easily can say in just two sentences what I've been trying to say for ten minutes. And here's what she says in a paper written about holiness. She said, As believers, we cannot do anything significant in this world unless we are pure in heart. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God in Matthew 5.8. There is the initial cleansing we experience when the Holy Spirit comes in fullness. But as we see God, which is living in the immediate presence of God, he continues to reveal new things that bring repentance for more purity and more of the Spirit. This is growth. John says it well, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. As we walk with God, he is constantly purifying us. We begin to have his eyes and to see things around us differently. He begins to change our desires. She said, we cannot do anything significant in this world unless we are pure in heart. And I would turn that around and say, if we are pure in heart, we can do things of great significance in this world for the kingdom of God. Repentance brings righteousness, which brings justice. Now, God had a purpose for the people of Israel that went far beyond their individual or even corporate worship of him. God's plan involved shaping and using Israel to bring about redemption and salvation for the entire world. And the same thing is true of us. God is calling us to repentance, to righteousness, and to justice. Not only so that we will worship him as is fitting and, it, and is as he deserves, but so that we will be useful tools in his hands as he works out his purposes in the world. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's ask God today to show us those areas of our lives in which we need to be repentant. Let's ask him to continue the process of purification in our lives so that we can be useful tools in his hands. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to bear fruit for you, Lord. We want to be the people uh, that you would have us to be. I ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are open to you, that are oriented toward you, Lord. 
so that we will know your purposes accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.